Good morning. Okay, this is the day we begin our studies in Ephesians. Before we get started, can I just say thank you to whichever mysterious person slash people uh, put birthday greetings on our garage door this morning for our son's birthday. We woke up this morning and there's a big sign on our garage saying, happy 13th birthday, Joseph, and there's 13 candles. So it's, uh, it's becoming incredibly typical for the kind of love we're getting in this church. So, but thank you very, very much. We do appreciate it. Well, Joe certainly appreciated it. It was very, very cool as far as he was concerned. I think we can leave it up for a week. Is that appropriate? Maybe two? Maybe two. Okay. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we pray that as we begin this morning our studies in the book of Ephesians, that you would bless this church richly. I pray that as we go through this book and in the coming months, that not only would you uh, add to our number, Lord, and, and bring people in, but, but far more importantly, Lord, that those of us who are here, those who, who listen, uh, who watch at later times, those who follow through the series, I, I pray that you would build this church up in maturity and you would grow us internally as well as externally, that we would be ever more uh, knowledgeable and understanding of this great salvation that we have and that we would not only learn how it is that we should conduct ourselves, but that we would, we would happily walk that walk, knowing the great love that you have shown for us. Father, may this time, may this study, may this, this series be utterly life-changing to us all. For your glory we ask this. Amen. Okay. Well, it's been a while. It's been a while for me. Uh, it's been a while for this church. I'm informed it's been about nine months since this church did a continuous verse-by-verse -verse study of a book of the Bible. And from this point forward, this will be our normal practice. It will be our, our very heartbeat, as it were. It is astonishingly important that we do this. There's no problem here and there. And maybe, you know, this time next year, maybe we'll have a, an Easter break and do a Palm Sunday sermon. And uh, I would love to be teaching the connection between Palm Sunday and Psalm 118. But maybe that's for next year and an Easter special and, and all of that. There's no problem with doing that. But there is something that is uniquely special about going verse by verse through a book of the Bible. And the predominant reason for this, and I'm, you know, before we kick into Ephesians, I just want to talk about the nature of doing a series. The predominant reason for this is that we, in our modern Christian era, have become single-verse scattergun Christians. You know? You, you want to prove something? Boom, here's a verse from one book. And what about this topic? Boom, here's a verse from another book. And scripture memorization has become very isolated. We memorize a single verse here and a single verse there. And sometimes that 
means completely misapplying the verse and misunderstanding it. Sometimes it simply means that we don't get the depth of understanding that we would get within a context. In the early Christian church, it was because they didn't have entire Bibles in, in a single print like we have here now. It was common practice if a community had, a, say, a, a copy of the Gospel of John, that they would memorize that Gospel and then swap with someone else who maybe had a Gospel of Matthew. And then they would have Matthew and have John up here. But we don't memorize books. We don't memorize chapters normally. We, we at best memorize single verses. And there, is a, there, are, there are dangers to this. And the biggest thing of all, and this is, this is a word that you will hear from me again and again and again and again and again, is context. It's all about context. Paul did not write a single verse in Ephesians. It wasn't like Paul said, hey, hey, this week I've got a real good nugget for you. Here's my little thought for the day. Boom, and there's your little verse, you know. You know, Paul didn't write some sort of chicken soup for the soul where, you know, here's a thought for this day and here's a thought for that day. He wrote an entire letter and it comes within that context. And, and, and obviously beyond that, it comes within the context of his wider writings. It comes in the context of the New Testament. And all of it is based on the foundation of the Old Testament. So it comes within the context of the Bible. And it comes within the context of that time and society and what have you. But most importantly, it comes within its context of the verses and chapters surrounding it. And what I want to do for you guys, not just in this series, but in every other series that we do, is I want to show you how as we go through, each of the verses don't stand alone as an individual sermon, but they link together to the next one and the next one. And the ones in the future hark back to the previous ones. And I want you to learn for yourselves how to start to read your Bibles in context. You will get so much more from your own Bible reading, from your own scripture reading as you do. And so that's my goal as we do this and as we, um, as we go through this series. And at some point we'll be starting a series in the Gospel of Mark in the evenings and we'll do the same there. And it will be the common, regular, normal practice of this church. And I hope that you will grow and you will learn as a result. So that series in general, now let's talk about Ephesians in particular. This is Paul's magnus opus. It's his great work. It is, it is the, the most important of books. We're going to talk about why when we hit the second half of verse 1. So we'll save, save that for the moment. But simply to say that this book of Ephesians has a nice little split... Uh, we'll talk about this a lot more next week, but it has a nice little split halfway through the book. Whereas the first three chapters are telling us, in essence, what God has done for us. Our salvation, what God has accomplished, and what he has given to us for free by his grace. Then when we hit chapter 4, we start to see the conduct that is becoming of a Christian who has been saved by grace. And there is that nice split. It's very important it comes in that order. That is your context to start with. It's important it comes in that order because it's only when we see what God has done for us that we then are internally motivated to live for him. 
And so this first few months of Ephesians, when we focus on these first three chapters, we're really going to have very little to say in regards to how we should live or what we should do. If you're the kind of person who likes every one of your sermons to be practical, you know, ten steps to this and five ways of doing that, you're going to be deeply disappointed for the next few months. What we're going to be doing is we're going to be sunbathing. That's sunbathing with an O. We're just going to be looking at what Christ has done for us, what the Father has done for us in Christ through His Spirit, and we're just going to be going, wow, that's just great. And we're just going to just soak it up and soak it up week after week, month after month, and hopefully by the time we hit chapter 4, we're all going to be kind of chomping at the bit and saying, what then shall we do? And that's hopefully how it will be. Now, one thing that will come through in this book, we see as we start in the very first verse. I'm not big on introductions. A lot of introductory stuff will come as we go. But um, if we look then together at verse 1. Um, uh, by the way, I preach at the moment from the ESV. So if you, you know, if, seeing as we're going to be in this book together for months and months and months, if you want to have exactly the same words in front of you, that's the version I'm using. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, like I say, I'm not big on introductions. I know a lot of people will, will start these books by sort of hyper-focusing, you know, grace and, uh, to you and peace. In verse 2, they'll talk about grace for five or ten minutes and peace for five or ten minutes. I don't tend to do that so much. So I'll skim a few things. But Paul here is the author of the book. There you go. That's about 50 pages in the average commentary just skimmed over. Paul is the author of the book. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus. There are biblically a couple of different definitions of apostles. Um, the, the main one uh, and the one that is typically used is those who had seen the risen Lord. That's why Paul refers to his apostleship as being uh, somewhat different from the others, almost an illegitimate apostleship. Uh, because, of course, his seeing of Christ was uh, on the road to Damascus, seeing the, the resurrected Christ there. Um, <clears throat> all I will say in passing or regards, you know, and again, I'm going to skip the five or ten minute little bit on apostleship, simply to say this. And this is something that will become very, very clear later in chapter two and in chapter four. But the apostles were a unique period of church history. We don't have apostles today. I know people will say, well, apostle means sent out, and there are some people whose particular gift is to send out other people. Yeah, I get that, but that's not what you mean, and that's not what we're saying. Sometimes people will use the term apostle to try and somehow give themselves a higher rank. Um, you know, I see these days, you see all these different names of churches. If I see a church that says, you know, apostolic church, I, I tend to have a little warning bell to go off in the back of my mind um, you know we are grounded on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets well, we'll talk about that when it comes but, but in detail but what, all I'll say for now is simply this that if you are living in a house it may be that you might give it a kind of fresh paint job on the outside you might fix up some of the trimmings you might replace some windows for you know, double glazing or something like that. But you aren't going to be putting down foundations on top of the roof. 
The whole way that that analogy works is that the foundations are what happens first and everything is built up on top of it. And we as a church are being built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets. What does that look like? That looks like what we're doing this morning. We're taking the work of Paul and we're building on top of it. He had a unique role, as we will see as we go through Ephesians, as an apostle of Christ Jesus. The other thing to know here is he's an apostle by Christ, uh, sorry, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, this is an important phrase. The will of God is one, one of those themes that keeps coming up and again and again in Ephesians. We will talk about this a lot more in a couple of weeks' time. It's it's one of those things that Christians sometimes struggle with, and we'll try and work through that in a few weeks. But simply at this point to say, Paul did not turn up at a, uh, some sort of job center. We have job centers in England. Do you guys have job centers? He didn't turn up. He, he didn't skim the classifieds and have a look. Didn't go onto Craigslist and say, you know, I wonder what jobs there are out there. Oh, apostle. Maybe I could do that, you know. As we know from Paul's own, you know, his personal life, he was the one holding the coats while people stoned the Christians. And he was heading on the Damascus Road to go and persecute more Christians when God got hold of him and says, come here, Sonny, I've got a job for you. He didn't get to choose. Now, every one of us who are Christians will have a testimony of how we came to choose Christ. And those testimonies are true and they're valid. And we did. But what the book of Ephesians will tell us in two weeks is that he chose us. And they're both true. And we'll wrestle with that in two weeks. But for now, I simply want us to note that who we are, the gifts we are given, the situations and circumstances we are in, are imposed upon us by God. And sometimes we don't have the gifts that we want. You know, sometimes the gifts that we're given um, are gifts that we would choose for ourselves. Sometimes we choose a gift and it isn't quite what we thought. And, you know, God is there behind the scenes, sovereign, in control, and making sure that his will is done. There's a good analogy, a good example of this in the Old Testament. If you want to keep a finger in Ephesians, I've, I've referenced this, I think, a couple of times just in passing and sermon, so I thought we'd have a look at it this morning. You want to turn to Jeremiah 20. Jeremiah was a prophet by the will of God. He was called, um, you could be turning to chapter 20, and I will read to you chapter 1. Of Jeremiah in verse 4 where he says now the word of God came to me saying before I formed you in the womb I knew you we'll be back here in two weeks as well before you were born I consecrated you I appointed you a prophet to the nations okay now I, I don't want to spoil two weeks time sermon but before Jeremiah was born God said you're my prophet and he responds and says, oh God, behold, I do not know how to speak. I'm only a youth. And he says, God says, don't, don't say I'm only a youth. For 
to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Doesn't that sound great? You don't have to worry, Jeremiah. Because wherever you go, I'm going to give you the words. All you've got to do is say what I tell you to say. It's like doing kind of a Bible reading here at church. You know, there's the passage, you open it up and you read it. You haven't got to, be, you know, got to think of anything else to say. No one's asking for you to write Isaiah 69 or something, you know, or let, let's write you know, the next another two or three chapters at the end of the book of John or something like that. No, no, no. You just read it. So here's the words, you speak the words, and not only will I give you the words, but I'm going to go with you. He says, don't be afraid of them, because I am with you. Okay? Let's look at chapter 20. Now Pashur, the priest, the son of Immer, who was the chief officer in the house of the Lord, he heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. What are the things he's prophesying? The words of God that God gave him to prophesy. Okay? That's the calling. You say my words. He's hearing those. And what words were they? You're a stiff-necked people and God's going to bring judgment on you. Not kind of the message that everybody wants to hear. But don't worry, I'm going to deliver you. So Pashur beat Jeremiah the prophet. Don't worry, I'm going to deliver you. Pashur the prophet beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. God, you've got to love your deliverance. It's kind of good, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know about you, but if God said to me, hey, Anthony, I've got a word for you to bring. People aren't going to like it, but don't worry. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to be with you. I wouldn't be thinking about being beaten and put in stocks. <laughs> because at that point, I'd say, God, your definition of deliverance and my definition of deliverance, we've got a misunderstanding here. <laughs> There's something that's gotten lost in translation. So, and I, Jeremiah clearly feels the same way. Pashur, by the way, he's, he was the second in command to the high priest. He was a pretty important guy. He got to do stuff like this. And uh, he's kind of fed up with Jeremiah spouting this stuff, telling everybody that they're doing wrong, telling the high priest that they're doing wrong, telling people God's going to bring judgment. No, we don't want to hear those, those condemning words. We just want someone to pat you on the back, tell you to live your best life now, and tell you everything's going to be all right. That's what we want. So let's put him in the stocks, give him a good beating. That'll shut him up. So the next day, verse 3, Pashur releases Jeremiah. Has it worked? Has it? Heck. Jeremiah said to him, The Lord does not call your name Pashur, but terror on every side. All you need to know is that this is a pun. The Hebrew for terror on every side sounds a bit like Pashur. And basically, Jeremiah is now taunting him, spiting him, and attacking him directly. No, you haven't shut Jeremiah up. For the, thus says the Lord. This is why Jeremiah does it. Thus says the Lord. This isn't me. This is what Yahweh says. Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and all your friends. Ah, oh, I don't want to preach a sermon on Jeremiah 20. But you don't want to get in God's way, do you? Pashur takes the wrong side. And now you're in the firing line, pal. You're going to be a terror to yourself and 
to all your friends. They shall fall by the sword of their enemies while you look on. This is the judgment against Pashur. Not only are you going to die, but you're going to watch all your friends die first, knowing that they're dying because you went against God. That's powerful stuff. That's a nice message, Jeremiah. Keep preaching that happy stuff. And I will give all Judah into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive to Babylon, and shall strike them down with the sword. Moreover, I'll give all the wealth of the city, all its gains, its prized belongings, all the treasures of the king of Judah, into the hands of the enemies who shall plunder them, and seize them, and carry them to Babylon. And you, Pashur, who, and all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity. To Babylon you shall go, and there you shall die. And there you shall be buried, you and all your friends to whom you have prophesied falsely. That's his, that's his judgment. You get to watch friends die. You get to get taken into captivity. Then you get to watch more friends die. And then you die. In exile. Because you went against the Lord. So does Jeremiah like being this kind of bulldog? Does he like getting beaten and put into stocks? You know the thing I love about the book of Jeremiah is we don't just get prophecies. More than any other prophet, we get a a, a kind of back door, if you like, to look behind the scenes and to see how the one delivering these messages feels. And this is how he feels. Look at verse 7. This is astonishing stuff. O Lord, you have deceived me. Takes a lot to say that to God, doesn't it? And I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. In other words, as I said earlier, your definition of deliverance and mine are obviously different. You've deceived me. You conned me. You pulled the wool over my eyes. You called me to be a prophet. I didn't get a choice in the matter. And it wasn't what I thought. It wasn't what you led me to believe. That kind of delivering me and being with me, I didn't realize that that didn't stop me from getting beaten and put in the stocks. He says, I have become the laughing stock all the day. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out and I shout violence and destruction. That seems to be his message, you know. It's like, okay, I'll tell you, I'll preach your word, God. What do you want me to preach today? Violence and destruction. Oh, Jeremiah, violence and destruction again. (laughs) Stupid Jeremiah, spit on Jeremiah, mock Jeremiah, laugh at Jeremiah. Jeremiah was isolated, he was hated, he was loathed, he was bullied, he was punished, he was harassed, he was hassled, he was just made, his life was made an absolute misery. And why was his life misery? Because God said, You are going to be my prophet. That's how much choice Jeremiah got in the whole thing. It doesn't end this way. He says, the, Lord, the Lord, word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. That's kind of hard. We think the word of God is a lamp unto my feet. The word of God builds me up. Not the word of God has become for me a reproach and a derision. <laughs> you know, it's, but it had for him and it has for many of us. I, I can relate to this. I can relate to preaching the word and trying to live by the word and trying to, you know, to, to follow the word and to suffer as a result of that. And you all will as well, if that's how you choose to live your life, by the word of God. 
And this is as true as the word of the Lord being a lamp unto my feet. But he says in verse 9, If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name. There comes a point in every weeping prophet's life where he gets to the point where he says, you know what, I'm done with this. I don't want to be a Jesus follower anymore. I don't want to talk about the Bible anymore. It's making me miserable. But then there's the Spirit of God. There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. I can't stop. He chose me. Back to Paul. The Apostle Paul had more than his fair share of beatings, whippings, stonings, and a few shipwrecks thrown in for good measure. And he did this until the end when his head was severed from his body. Did God protect him and deliver him? Yeah, he did. And he protected and he delivered Jeremiah. How do we know that he delivered Jeremiah? Because he got no beatings? Oh no, he got his beatings. He delivered him because he kept him around to preach his word to the ones who beat him. The Apostle Paul suffered his share of imprisonments, of beatings, and it was while he was imprisoned that he wrote this book. While imprisoned, probably in Rome. And we today, and we in these coming months, can be blessed by the book of Ephesians because the Apostle Paul suffered. It's not a life he would have chosen. It was a life that God chose for him. Our lives, folks, are never perfect. The grass is always greener on the other side. The person who's been blessed with the gift of singleness doesn't see the struggles that those who are married often have. Those who are struggling in marriage don't see the loneliness of the single person. Everybody looks at everybody else's lives and, they, and, and, and we live in this era of marketing and advertising where everything's portrayed as you want this and you need this and, and this is what's going to make your life better and what have you. But the reality of it is, folks, that God has brought us to this point in our lives with the gifts that we have, with the circumstances that we have for his purposes. And we just need to serve him. Paul is preaching this letter to these people as an apostle. Getting on with the job he was given. And I hope and I pray that we will, as non-apostles, do the work that we're called to do in our circumstances. Even when it involves the nasty stuff. Knowing that... The life that God's chosen for us may not be the life that we've chosen. But he can bring good out of everything. And that's something that's hard. Something I struggle to get my head around in my own life. So I'm not saying that as you should get this and this should be obvious and don't you, you know. It's a struggle. It's a struggle for us all. But God is good and he can bring good from all circumstances. Now... He writes this 
to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. It seems so simple in the English, but it's not. And this is where I have to get a little bit technical, but I will try and keep it as simple as I can. Does anybody, I know one version that does, but I know most don't. Anybody, you can stick your mitt up in the air. Does anybody have a version where the words in Ephesus are in brackets? No, there's a couple of versions that do that. Here's a little problem, a little conundrum. I like conundrums, as you know. Little mysteries that we, we can unravel. In the oldest manuscripts, or some of the oldest and most reliable manuscripts that we have of the Greek manuscripts of the book of Ephesians, it says, uh, to the saints, literally the holy ones, I think sometimes we become familiar with the word saints and we forget what it actually means, the ones who are holy, we've been made holy in Christ Jesus. The holy ones who are, and then there's a blank, there's just a blank. There's nothing there. And are faithful in Christ Jesus. And however you work it, it doesn't make any sense. Now, there is this study, this, 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 uh, this area of study called textual criticism. And that's where when you have different Greek manuscripts that have slight variations, you, you work out what the original is that you know, Paul or whoever else wrote. And it's a perfectly legitimate study. We believe that the original documents were inspired, but we've got lots and lots of copies, and occasionally there are slight variations. And the key is to try and find out if there's two manuscripts that are different, why would one be different than the other? Okay? So why would someone take out the words in Ephesus? I can see why someone would put them in, but what would they And it creates a little bit of a mystery. So I'm going to tell you the two possibilities, and then you can make your own minds up. But it's, it's important for us, whichever one you pick, because there's conclusions that will affect our entire study of Ephesians. Okay? So let's have a look at this. Paul wrote this letter in Rome. And one possibility is, is that this manuscript was sent out, or maybe multiple copies of this manuscript were sent out, without the words there. Without the words in Ephesus. There. And the reason is, is that this of all Paul's letters is the least personal. It's the least personal. It's in most of his letters, he has all these personal details about saying hello to so-and-so and do this for so-and-so. And he deals with specific situations that are within that church. You know, in, when he's writing to Corinthians, there are unique problems in that church that he's trying to address. But in, in Ephesians, there just isn't that. In Ephesians, that doesn't seem to exist. And one suggestion is that what Paul did in Ephesians, he, he did not write a letter to a specific church... But in fact, what he did is he wrote a letter that was a circular letter. And that it was designed to go all the way around the churches that he was, he was linked with in Asia Minor. Now, I won't bore you with a big map or anything like that, but just take my word for it. If you're sending a letter from Rome to Asia Minor, the main port of entry that you would go to, the first place you would go to, is Ephesus. So I imagine a copy of this letter went and it was in Ephesus. 
There you are, here's your copy. And that, or, or they had the blank, the blank in it, and then they made copies of that blank, and now they've got theirs, and they can write in their copies in Ephesus. And that was the biggest of the churches, it was the most established, it was the one where Paul spent most of his time, and it makes perfect sense that our textual tradition, where we got our copies and copies and copies and copies from, originated in Ephesus. What's interesting is this, that the very next place that the, if you're going, I say anti-clockwise, you guys say counterclockwise, don't you? Is that right? I'm learning, I'm learning. If you go counterclockwise from Ephesus around Asia Minor, the next place you will go to is a place called Laodicea. Now, just again, keep your finger in Ephesians. Just turn to a couple of books further on, to the book of Colossians. While you're turning to Colossians chapter 4, I'm just going to read to you from Ephesians 6, where at the very end in his final greetings, he says, so that you may know how I'm doing and what I'm doing, Tychicus, I love that name, that's a cool name, we should, we should have called one of our kids Tychicus, Tiki is a nice little abbreviation, isn't it? Um, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So the letter of Ephesians, whether it was delivered to one place or multiple places, it was delivered by Tychicus. Okay? Now let's look at Colossians 4, verse 7. Tychicus, there he is again will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow, uh, and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are. So, Tychicus delivered Ephesians and Tychicus delivered Colossians. So he goes from Rome to Ephesus and then he goes around Asia Minor. This is not Paul, because Paul's still in prison. This is Tychicus, goes, takes the letter to Ephesus. He then takes it, presumably, to Laodicea. And then he goes to Colossian, to Colossae, where he delivers not only this book, presumably, if it's a circular book, right? But he also delivers the book of Colossians, which is a book that is very specific to that church and its situation. And what is interesting is, of all Paul's books, the two that are most similar and use the most similar language are Ephesians and Colossians. And I think the reason is he wrote it at the same time. I think that Paul spent years and years and years writing Ephesians as a statement of this is what Christianity is. And as he was finishing that up, words came to him about troubles in Colossae, and he wrote a letter using much of the same language and the same principles that he'd been writing in Ephesians, to, uh, specifically for Colossae, and he sent Tychicus out. Tychicus goes to Ephesus, goes to Laodicea, and he goes to uh, Colossae, where they get the, both letters in Colossae. Does that kind of make sense? And here's one little thing. Look a little bit further down in Colossians 4, and verse 15. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea. It's the next place along, right? And to Nympha and the church and, and her house. And when this letter, that's Colossians, has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. There may be principles that they can learn from as well. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. 
Some people, myself included, think that perhaps the letter from Laodicea is that this letter that we're studying, the book of Ephesians, which is doing the rounds. It goes to Ephesus, it goes to Laodicea. Now when it comes to Colossae, when you've read this letter to, to, your, to the church, send it back to Laodicea, make sure they get it, and then you read the one that they've been written. And that's why there's that blank, because the blank is in Ephesus for the Ephesians, it's in Laodicea for the Laodiceans, and the Colossians get to read it as well, although they've got their own letter. It's a circular letter. Now, that would also explain why there's a guy back in history called Marcion who had a list of inspired writings, and on his list of books that he considered inspired, there is mysteriously the letter to the Laodiceans. And I suspect that that's a reference to the book of Ephesians. So it kind of wraps up a few things. But for those scholars, and there are many, and they're probably actually in the majority, those scholars who say, no, actually this book was written specifically for Ephesus, what then, if it was written to the church in Ephesus, what then do we make of this blank in some of our earliest and most reliable manuscripts? Well, at the very least, even if you don't buy the circular letter story, the reality is that it gets to Ephesus, somebody makes a copy of the book, and they leave a blank because this book is so darn general and so applicable to everybody that it's a letter not just for Ephesus, it's a letter for you and I as well. So whichever theory you take, what is important for us to understand as we come to this book now is this. That of all Paul's books, this is the least personal, and it is the most, I think in the language, it's the most carefully thought out. I think he probably spent more time on this book than any other. And it seems to me to be a statement of Paul saying, this is what Christianity is. You remember if you were here in the evenings a few weeks back, I taught the doxology at the end of the book of Romans, where Paul refers to the gospel as my gospel. And we will see this in Ephesians, that Paul uniquely was able to have, well, had revealed to him and was able to understand the gospel in a way that wasn't revealed to anybody else. And so he is saying in the first three chapters, this is the gospel. Right, from your perspective here, isn't it? Left to right. This is the gospel. This is what God has done for you. This is what the Father decided. This is what Christ accomplished. And this is how the Spirit enabled it to happen. And as a result, chapters 4, 5, and 6, this then is how you should live. So for us as a church, that means in this book, we're not just going through some letter that was written to somebody else thousands of years ago. We are looking at probably the greatest human mind outside of Christ himself, who knew the Bible and the scriptures better than anyone else, summing up the Christian faith in a way that is utterly timeless, that is astonishingly in-depth, and that is incredibly practical. That sounds like something that we could get a lot of benefit from in the coming months. So, where we have a little, maybe in the footnote of your Bible, a little textual note to tell you that those words aren't the original, there's actually some real meat to that for us, because it's telling us, whichever, whichever theory you go with, it's telling us that this book is a book of great importance to us. This is nothing less 
than the great Apostle Paul's summary of what Christianity is in theory and in practice. And that's why we're going to spend so much time on it. And so he says in the greeting, this is the point now, we've been going for a while, you'll be glad that I uh, don't spend a lot of time on this. Grace to you and peace from our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. We could talk for an hour about grace and we could talk for an hour about peace, but then there'd be topical sermons and we're trying to go verse by verse. We'll learn all about grace because Paul's going to explain it in a lot of detail in the coming verses. Uh, but these words were used as typical greetings and he greets them and he greets them with grace and peace and then in verse 3 he starts off his letter with a summary statement that is one of the most glorious statements in the whole of scripture blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and it is that verse that we shall be spending the entirety of our time on next week. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for this journey that we're now about to embark upon. I hope and I pray that this morning we've, we've whetted appetites and people are, are ready and excited hope and I pray Lord that as we embark on this series of studies that, uh, that you would speak through us, that these words would be your words that we would in all of our individual circumstances and the, the will of you that you have imposed on our lives with the different gifts and circumstances we're in, that this book would be a foundation for us all this book would be a guide for us all and that this book would be a strength for us all. May you be glorified in our studies in the coming weeks. Amen.